Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. You know, this week we're recording a little, little later than usual, a little out of sorts as usual, because, well, let's face it, yesterday we spent at trackside. We did. Not, we, a, not all day trackside, but a good chunk of yesterday trackside. We did. And we were trackside at our first ever dart cart races. Yes. Now, these are, as you can tell by the name, actual cart races on a full-size track. Which makes them endurance cart racing. Yeah. <laughs> Which it seems a little odd that a 45-minute session would be an endurance-type thing, but apparently it is. Well, given the size of those carts, yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Um, so I don't know if you had the same impression that I did, but I was mesmerized by the differences in the carts. Well, it looked like there were multiple classes of carts out there. Um, from what we have seen is the, the tradition, and, and I use traditional in air quotes, but the traditional ones that many of the Formula One drivers have, have cut their teeth on in Europe to ones that look a little more souped up mm. with fairings and reclining seats and i don't think they had air conditioning but uh. they didn't need it they were out in the <laughs> open i was amused mostly by the carts that had the driver in the skeleton like position it was it looked like it was a motorized skeleton sled i think there were quite i think quite a few of the ones that had the the aerodynamic fairings on them were like that it's just there were quite a few that were running without any extra bits <laughs> <laughs> basically a Driver and a frame. Yeah. And an engine. Yeah. And an engine. Um, there weren't... The the carts themselves are all classed, and that was a, a common class of carts, or the drivers are classed, but they were all in a like group um, that were on the track at the same time. But I don't know what that was. We're not 100% sure what we were looking at, but it was fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, we, we showed up kind of in the middle of the session and wandered around a bit during the session but uh, yeah it was really kind of interesting and especially to see those tiny little carts running around on the full size track this was not a go-kart track they had the full run of the entire length of the mid-ohio motorsports park which you know with carts that small means you don't see much in terms of wheel to wheel coming off the carts (laughs) there was plenty of room if somebody needed to get off the line pretty much they could go four abreast across most of the track and still have room left over yeah Um, but you might be wondering, some of our more astute people listening might be wondering, what were you guys doing in a dark cart event, just wandering around where you don't know what's going on, you didn't know a driver, what was going on? We were doing exactly that. (laughs) I didn't know there was more to the story than that. (laughs) Well, we were at the, we were at the track doing a scouting expedition because, Next weekend, we will be going to Vintage Grand Prix. Uh, vintage Motorcycle. No, Grand oh, Prix. Grand Prix is next week? Next week okay, is Vintage Grand Prix. I thought it was Motorcycles Prix. was first. No. Okay. Motorcycles is second. Cool. Grand Prix is first. Okay, so yeah, we'll be at the Vintage GP then next week. That's where we will be. <laughs> <laughs> but we were scouting out the situation, the track, the layout, looking for, you know, really great places to watch good action. Um, we do have grandstand seats, but might want to, you know, sit on the infield for a little bit. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. We 
basically have the run of the track. So we'll see what what happens. But yesterday was quite a lot of fun as we just went wandering around and you know, nobody stopped us, nobody asked questions. It was pretty simple and easy to yeah. just go where we wanted to go. Including all the way through the paddock and looking in everybody's well, trailers cuz they're not really garages. But it was amazing. Well, there, there is a garage there, and some of the folks do ha, uh, do have setups in the garages. But for the most part, no. They work out of trailers in their pad, which is about normal. And it, it was really kind of cool. I also, not only was I mesmerized by the different <coughs> kinds of carts that were on the track, but I was also mesmerized by the different levels of um, obvious participation and, okay, money. Um, you know. <laughs> There were people with extremely nice, very expensive motorhomes with, you know, the toy hauler behind it that obviously had double-decker carts and, mm-hmm. you know, a full-on workshop that they came prepared with. And then there was the guy in his minivan where the cart was in the back of the minivan. They had taken out the middle seats and that was his workshop. And he had an easy-up uh, tent to kind of keep him in the shade. And that was all the man had. Yeah. <laughs> And that was the the difference. That was the level of spectrum that you kind of had. You had show up with just the bare minimums, and you had to show up with everything under the sun. <laughs> so that was it. Was just it was kind of cool to watch and cool to wander around. And hopefully, my sunburn will be gone by the time we go back again. We'll see what happens. So let's move on to F one. <coughs> sure. <laughs> You know, I still view this story with a degree of skepticism, and as I have greeted all similar stories with a degree of skepticism regarding this topic. But the BBC is reporting that things are actually starting to pick up speed and solidify about a race in Las Vegas on the Strip. I thought that, that last we heard that wasn't looking like it was going to happen. Well, you know, we have heard Bernie saying that, you know, they just need to find a pen, and this would happen. Um, but organizers of the race, or, or the, who are trying to put this together, have revealed that a Chinese conglomerate has agreed to commit the 100 million pounds uh, needed for the race to get the green light. They add that Las Vegas could appear on the calendar as soon as next year which would be 22 races. Um, I would be continually very skeptical about that. Yeah. I think it's going to go the way of Hoboken, quite frankly. Well, um, according to American entrepreneur Fareed Shidfar, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. I hope so. S-H-I-D-F-A-R, who is the founder of the organizing group P2M Motorsports. Um, He has an agreement in principle with a Beijing-based conglomerate. He says they're very close to Las Vegas and have got business in media, sport, technology, and entertainment, so they are a massive conglomerate. They came to us out of the blue late last year because of the initiatives they are involved with in the state of Nevada and have been in due diligence since then. The benefits they will derive are very strategic, so that's why they are very excited about it. So, yeah, could be interesting. And, and this would be on the Strip and not in, oh, the parking lot at Caesars Palace. 
Not in the parking lot. Good thing. Mm-hmm. On the strip, I just don't. I, I don't see it. I honestly don't see it. I, you know, I could see the city going for it mm-hmm. because they seem to really not care what happens on the strip as long as it brings publicity and action and, and whatever. It doesn't bother them. But I got to think on the strip, you're looking, and we'll get to it later, but you're looking at a race very similar in style to Baku with super long straights and a bunch of 90-degree turns. Well, that would be my concern is where do you get the twisty bits? I mean, because... The strip is stick straight. The strip is stick straight. And the thought would be for the visual, you'd want to go from one end to the other. And then you're going to have this 90-degree turn at the other end. But there's not twisty bits around. Well, maybe one of our... I mean, th- our friends could correct us, but there's not good twisties. I, I think over by the Venetian, there may be a few because they've, they've reconfigured some of the roads there. So there, there may be a little bit over there. But yeah, I think for the most part, there's going to need to be some structural modifications to really give that, give the track or, or give the course some character. Uh, that would be my concern is where do you get the character and then keep in mind you're also going to be asking to shut down the strip for a significant portion of time again i don't think vegas cares because all of the while yes the traffic would suck all of those hotels are accessible from off the strip there are roads that run parallel to the strip that everything that's on the strip is accessible to and knowing the de- knowing Vegas, what they would probably do is work something out very similar to um, what's in place in Monaco. Well, that if when when there's no actual action on the track, the track is open to traffic. Well, that part I could understand, but also think of this: the last time you were in Vegas, mm-hmm. do you remember the number of thousands of people that are walking from hotel to hotel, just mm-hmm. down the strip? All of that would have to get closed off. Because you couldn't control ticketing at that point. What I think they would do is they would close off areas. Think think some of the visual that we have seen so far in Baku. We haven't seen the race. But if you think about that visual there, or even for that respect uh, in Monaco, is there are large sections of those tracks which... You couldn't put a grandstand in if you wanted to. No, I'm not saying put a grandstand in. But because of that, y- you have to allow foot traffic to access those, whether it's houses or whatever, businesses, any of those things, so that they don't shut down because you are in the middle of a city. And as a result, you can't just turn around and say for four straight days, sorry, business, whatever, you have to be closed. Yeah, they're not, that's I mean, what they, I'm they figure thinking out how to, they're going to wind up doing. But they figure— they figure out how to do that in Singapore. They figure out how to do it in Monaco. I'm sure they can figure out how to do it in Vegas. Okay. I still don't think there's going to be a race in Vegas. And that that may be a possibility, too. Prove me wrong. Well, that's up to Formula One. I, I think things are further along than they were a month ago. But, yeah, I, st- I agree. you got to view it with, with a degree of skepticism. Until we actually see construction. Okay. 
I'm going to go so far as until I see cars, but all right. <laughs> well, I think you've got to give a little more leeway only because of, you know, Circuit of the Americas. Mm -hmm. That was a new thing that a lot of folks were very skeptical was going to happen. And until, oh, actual asphalt got laid, not even construction of the circuit, but actual Asf asphalt got laid, that was okay, well, maybe they're actually serious and going to pull this off. <laughs> yeah. True. Very true. <laughs> but, but that was a clear and concrete sign before vehicles started showing up that, yeah, this is, this is probably real at this point. And that's why I think when we see an actual layout and we see that they're actually doing work on the facilities that are needed for this, then I'll start to believe it. Okay. So, moving on. Yes. Um, I guess there's been some footage that would seem to indicate that um, wings, front and rear wings, may be moving a little more than they're supposed to be on Formula One cars, specifically those from Red Bull and Ferrari. Now, Red Bull's had this allegation leveled against them many times in the past. Oh, yes. Now, as a reminder, the requirement is that the wings on, the, on a Formula One car are only allowed to move by, like, millimeters during race conditions. Because the thought being if they move more than that, that's changeable aerodynamics, and that affects cars' performance and all of those things. So outside of DRS, they only can move, like, a couple of millimeters. And Red Bull has had those charges leveled against them many times that they're running what are, what are typically called flexi wings. Right. Um, so the FIA has changed their testing regime yet again to see if there is any evidence of teams running flexi wings based on video that appears to show wings moving more than they're supposed to be. Ooh. And um, the FIA has come out and said, um, yeah, these passed. Oh, okay. You know, there is that part of me, and I freely admit this, that I love this idea that Red Bull is the big bad villainous team that pushes the rules and that they border on cheating. And maybe it is cheating, but it's really close to the line. And I love that thought because I love well, it when they get caught. It, it's not just Red Bull, though. I mean, it's every team. And... and there's that free acknowledgement. We heard it last year from uh, from Nikki Lauda. You push the rules as everywhere that you possibly can to every potential limit that you can, and you wait for somebody to go up. Oh, you broke the rules, and then you change. Right. I mean, right. I mean, <laughs> I think the I think the most eye opening version of that was um, an interview Adrian Newey had um, back when he was still designing for Red Bull. And he talked about that part of his job was to look at the rules mm -hmm. and not look at them as limitations, but to look at them as edges. Yeah. And he had to push the edge. And it gave him sort of like, those were the guidelines, but how could I do it just a hair's breadth inside the guideline? Mm -hmm. So I was... You know, a new way of routing your exhaust or something like that that gives you the couple of extra seconds mm -hmm. or tenths, all of those various bits. But, yeah, they've come out and they have said that, nope, nobody was, uh, nope, was outside the, the appropriate specs. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear that they were playing with the rules. So we learned something about Rio Harianto in a run-up to Montreal. Yes. 
So we know that he is the sport's first ever Indonesian driver. Mm-hmm. What we didn't realize is that what comes with that is not only is he, is he the first ever Indonesian driver, he's the first ever Muslim driver, and he's a practicing Muslim. And what would that mean as we were in the run-up to Montreal? Well, where that brings significance is that Montreal was held during Ramadan. And one of the practices for Ramadan is that you fast during the day, mm-hmm. all day, which kind of, if you're an F1 driver, kind of wreaks havoc with your training re- regime. <laughs> I bet it does. Um, and not to mention the fact that there's been so many studies about how many calories they use while they're driving in race, in a race form. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to figure that by three o'clock in the afternoon, he's probably pretty hungry. Yeah. Well, there's that. There's also the fact that, okay, he hasn't eaten all day. And during a race, especially if it's warm, you know, it's not as bad with, with last weekend in Montreal. The temperatures were a bit cooler. But even still, drivers lose a lot of body fluid during a race. Um, and when you, lo- when you get dehydrated from, from losing that much fluid, your concentration starts to drift. So let's think about that. You're piloting a Formula One car around <laughs> one of the faster circuits that the series ghost visits, dehydrated, in the middle of a fast. That might not be a good combination. That does not equal <clears throat> go fast. Yeah. Now, my understanding is Ramadan is about a month long. Mm-hmm. Does that put Baku also in the middle of Ramadan? I think so. I don't know exactly. I would assume so. Um, they Now, his physio is monitoring his condition prior to each races and apparently is directing Rio whether or not to break his fast early. Mm. And we didn't hear if he did it for Montreal or, for that matter, for Baku, but it is something that apparently they are watching and watching very closely so that he remains safe. Well, that's important. I mean, I'm glad. And I hope that he is open to the fact that, you know, his job does require some level of food and fasting can be detrimental to that. But there's also got to be ways that they do eat in the evenings. Yeah. Um, There's got to be ways that... Carb loading. Carb doing something in that. Maybe it's a matter of an increased salt intake that would hold water. Yeah, I don't Um, know. You know, I'm just kind of thinking through, and these are like just my uninformed concepts but if he could do something in the evening hours to prep for having to fast and then work he might be able to his physio would probably be able to help him with that too well it's definitely a way that his um physio can earn his pay i would be most concerned i mean just me personally let's say you get through the race you're doing fine but you're now dehydrated post-race, mm-hmm. how long do you have before you can start drinking water again? Because I don't think they drink either. I think it is both right. a fast and a no drinking. Um, so if he's got another couple of hours to then wait before he can drink, that dehydration dehydration just will compound itself. Yeah, it, and it, it does not sound like a great situation. No. So maybe it's better in Baku because it's a twilight race and um, he will be able to have something as soon as he gets out of the car. I guess. Now, on the plus side, 
Okay. And this is something I learned a long time ago, and this is the only little piece of, of uh, Muslim Ramadan information I actually have. Okay. But apparently it is a great blessing on the person that helps you break your fast. Yeah. So if the person that gets to bring Rio food is supposed to be very well blessed in their tradition. So I think that given the fact he's going to be super, super hungry and super thirsty, that would probably be like double blessing. Well, the other bit of news around Rio, and yeah, this is kind of dribbling into some silly season stuff. Um, we don't have too much, but this is one of the things to mention. Rio is only paid up into through, Aust- or not Austria, Hungary. Hungary. After that, there is no word yet on whether his sponsor, Pertamina, will or has an interest in continuing his drive at Manor. So his season could end. And who would be the backup driver for Manor? Well, that's where it could really get interesting because Manor's reserve driver would be this year's Indy 500 winner, Alexander Rossi. Yes, it would be. Now, since Alexander Rossi is currently slated to drive at Mid-Ohio, which is the week after the Hungary race, and is the same weekend as one of the other. Germany. Germany's Grand Prix. The question becomes, is Rio's lack of, of sponsorship going to screw up me meeting Alexander Rossi at the Mid-Ohio Grand Prix? Well, that's what we will see. That will be the question. Do I need to start my write-in campaign now? I mean, it does seem a little odd that Pertamina would only pay through Hungary and not Germany. And get them to the mid-year break. Right. That that seems a little unusual, and I would have thought that Manor would have pushed that. But maybe the thought is, well, okay, we bring a driver in for that, and then we've got the the – next couple of weeks to sit and negotiate before we need to get a a body in the seat again. I don't know. Well, here's the other question is it's, so it's 21 races this year. Mm -hmm. The question is where does the mid-year break fall? Is the mid-year break at the 11th race or is it past? I think it's the 11th race. So my question, my bet is that the reason it's at Hungary and not Germany is that Rio's sponsor paid for half the year and said, we will reevaluate whether he's going to drive the second half of the year if it was going to be beneficial. Because remember, originally, the deal was to split that seat three ways. Well, that was the rumor. That was- we, didn't, we, we don't know for sure. That was the rumor was that it was a three-way. So they may have only signed up for half figuring that the other two would pick up the other half and that they haven't. So, I mean, there's a couple of different reasons why it might stop at, at the – well, where it stopped. Like, okay, yeah. we grabbed 10 races for Rio and not expecting that we were going to run out of Rio at this point. But – okay, fine. <laughs> but, you know, it, there's, a, there's a couple of different ways to, to look at it. The reality is it does put in – question as to what's going to happen at the end towards the end of the season this year for manor and it does mean that manor still has to deal with 2016 silly season versus looking just forward at 2017 silly season well i think the way manor typically runs anyway they're not going to look at the 2017 driver lineup until 
after Abu Dhabi anyway. I don't think they normally try and sign their drivers. I was going to say, they're going to look at it in February. Well, they're not going to be that bad, but... I think one year they didn't announce until February. Well, no, they did. And then they announced a different driver. And then they announced a different driver. But they weren't Sauber who tried to put four butts in two seats. No, th- this was that checks were like bouncing or something yes. like that. It, it wasn't completely their fault. I mean, it, that 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 was a somebody said that they would pay and then didn't pay. But remember, if you're manner, you always have the fallback of Pastor Maldonado. <laughs> He's looking for a seat, guys. So. Let's talk about Montreal. Yes, let's talk about Montreal. It was a really good race. <laughs> it was a good race. Um, we did not get the rain that we expected. Um, but Lewis Hamilton ended up walking away, um, I think, with a victory on strategy. It really was, because he had an incredibly poor start. He had a... A bad start. Well, both the Mercedes did. Both Although Mercedes his was did. the worst of the bunch. And uh, But and in sharp contrast, he had Sebastian Vettel directly behind him, who quite frankly had a start that phenomenal seems to be an understatement for that start. Well, you know, I think you could use his own words earlier in the season to describe the start. It was like a torpedo. It was. <laughs> it was. He, he launched like a rocket. You know, the, the best comparison that I had to it was um, think back to Fernando Alonso in 2013 and 2014 where he'd end up so often mired in the middle of the pack in his Ferrari and at the start of the race would miraculously manage to gain four or five places because you know the best way they described it is not only did he leap off the line but he was able to plot out the potential courses that he was going to need to weave through the grid Mm -hmm. as he had that rocket ship start and and that i think was always phenomenal and truly you looked at the start and all of a sudden seb came out of nowhere yeah i mean just out of nowhere and he was around hamilton like nobody's business. So by corner one, it was Seb's race to lose. Mm-hmm. He had distance. He had speed. He had the fur. He was running ahead. And then we had a virtual safety car. Well, before we even get to that, mm-hmm. because the the other big drama at the start of the race was coming around turn one, mm-hmm. whereas. Lewis describes he had some uh, um, some understeer, which <laughs> caused him to take the turn wider and hit Nico, driving Nico off the track. And this has been a thing of a lot of controversy. Now, Nico, for he has come out afterwards and he has admitted that you know initially he was pissed. It was he felt that Lewis pushed him off the race, but you know, off the track, and you know when you end up as Toto says, I think it was in first and fifth coming out of turn one when you were side by side at the front of the the grid. Yeah, that's not exactly a good thing. Right. But I, I'm not going to weigh in as to whether or not I thought Lewis really did have over understeer or not. I 
I don't know enough about racing dynamics and the car and all that other stuff, whether or not to say that that was true. The one thing, though, that everybody has been saying is that odds are Lewis did push him off the track, and Lewis pushed him off the track because Lewis knows that nine times out of ten, when he pushes Nico, Nico's going to give away. Yep. And when Nico doesn't give away, like what happened in Spa or what happened in Barcelona, yeah, they may wreck, but A, the odds of that that happening are pretty low because Nico's going to give away. And if he doesn't, he also believes that the odds are pretty high that Nico's going to get villainized for it, not him. Right. And I think, honestly, Lewis is right on both counts. Probably. Now— and they apparently, and according to one of the commentators that I was listening to um, during the race or in some post-race stuff, they have been playing the psychological game since karting. And that's not oh, news. Yeah. That's not like shockingly news. But Lewis. Cothard who said that Lewis has been winning the psychological game against that, Nico since they were a teenager. Right. <laughs> and that's the thing is Lewis has got. And Lewis and Nico have 10-plus years of how that psychological game plays out. Mm -hmm. And that's ingrained in them at this point. And unless Nico figures out how to get Lewis out of his head, Lewis is going to continue to win that battle. Well, you know, before we go on any further, I'm just going to jump ahead because it was actually in the build-up to this week in Baku. Um, Jenny Gao, who was this week back over at the BBC— haven't been able to figure out what she's been up to lately because okay. she does a lot of stuff with ESPN. But Jenny Gao caught up with Nico mm -hmm. and spoke to Nico. And Nico tells us that he is over it. Here, here, listen, as he tells us that he is without a doubt, he is over it. Well, coming back has never really been an issue uh, for me after difficult races, you know, and that's how I'm feeling now. I'm feeling very good and positive, optimistic for this one. And it still is very, very promising because our car is awesome and I know that... Uh, that coming here, you know, there's the best chance that I can I can win the race here if I if I do a good job on the weekend, and uh, and if Lewis has a bit less understeer in turn one, um, no, I'm just kidding, then uh, then the chances are great, you know. So I'm looking forward to it and trying to make the most of it. Have you gone back and looked at that video again and just kind of reviewed it in your mind so you know you know what happened exactly? Looked at data and, and you're totally on, on over that situation. Yeah, yeah, completely, uh, for sure, which uh, I didn't show now because I mentioned it, which is uh, not, the, not the opposite of what I'm saying, but anyways, um, no, it's a thing of the past, you know, and, uh, and I already, I was over it on Sunday in Montreal um, because, uh, yeah, it's, it was tough, but uh, racing, you know, and, uh, and he, uh, he, um, he ended up in front after the battle, and next time I need to try and turn it around so that I'm in front again, and that's it. So, yes, he is over it. All I could think of as I was listening to this whole thing all that, that really came to mind, and I don't have the clip available. It probably would have been worth it. But if you think back to Friends, Ross is hearing the message from Rachel about how she is over him, and that is what you call closure. And Ross hangs up the phone and looks at Rachel and goes, you're over me? When were you under me? <laughs> <laughs> that was a classic, Ross. Because... If you're over the situation, that doesn't really feel like you're over anything. He didn't no. have to bring it up. No, he didn't. But Jenny asked him, too. Have you gone back and looked but, at the film? But Jenny asked him after he mentioned it. True. 
That's the thing. He didn't have to mention that at all. No, and if he was truly over it, maybe he wouldn't. But I couldn't stop hearing in my head the, what was it, last year somebody asked Nico how he was going to beat Lewis, and he's like, just just beat Lewis, just go faster than Lewis. Well, yeah. <laughs> and he kept saying that. That was the still- BBC asking him. Um, it was, um, what's her face? Lee McKenzie. Yeah. Just beat Lewis. Just beat Lewis. And, you know, it's funny. That is truly what stands between Nico and a world championship. And I think it sounds very trite to say it this way, but this is my my deep thought for the moment. Nico has to beat Lewis not just on the track. He has to mentally beat Lewis. And that's where Nico has always pulled up short. And I realize that Nico is running ahead in the in the standings and mm-hmm. towards his world championship. And maybe this is his year. But when if if he continues on the path he's on and he wins the world championship, I will lay absolute bets that the pundits and the commentators will speak less about how Nico finally beat Lewis in the mental game and more about how Lewis didn't try hard enough. That will be the story probably if Nico wins. It won't be the story if Lewis wins. Well, no, I, I think actually the way it, it, it it's going to be is it's not going to be that Nico wins the championship. It's, it's that, that Lewis, Lewis lost it. it. Yep. And that's the difference. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always think of when I hear Nico. I mean, it's a simple summary. It just beat Lewis. But you've got to understand you are competing with Lewis, not just on that track, but you are mentally in a battle with him. You are in a battle with him every second of every minute of this championship. And Rosberg forgets that. And Rosberg steps back. And when put head-to-head, Rosberg is the one that always defers. And that's that's what bites him in the butt every time. Well, a lot of people turn around and they say that 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 is the difference between a true number one and a number two driver Mm -hmm. is the number one driver is always pushing to make sure that they are the number one driver and stay the number one driver and they will get aggressive and they will not yield to their teammate. They, you know, they will stand up and and fight, Um, you know, think back to, to multi 21 where you know, Sebastian Vettel being told to let Mark pass, and, and Vettel says, yeah, the hell with that. Right. So, And you look at other drivers that have done the same thing. Yeah. I, mean, I think Max is trying, Mr. Verstappen is trying to do the same thing now. He doesn't tend to let Ricardo pass when asked by his team either. You know, th- this is the other bit of silly season, and this is more rumor than anything else but there has been a lot more talk i have seen this week about the possibility of nico leaving mercedes Mm. um with gary anderson over at at autosport doing a fairly long piece about why he thinks that nico not only needs to leave mercedes but should go of all places to ferrari and the the big thing being that Nico is pretty much done about all he can do against Lewis on the same team. True. And, you know, the, the fact that when there are these clashes and Nico stands up for himself, he rarely comes out the winner. Even when he does win the clash, he rarely comes out the winner, even from the team perspective. 
So better he turn around and go to a team like Ferrari where there's going to be a seat open, where they are they appear to be on the rise and have a fighting chance over there. Yeah, he may still be the number two there, but at least it's a fresh team and fresh faces and a fresh organization and a fresh person to compete against. I see the point. I definitely see it. I think that Ferrari would be very, very wise to be courting Nico, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I think Kimi is done. And I think that they need to court the right person for that seat. To to give you an idea of how poorly Kimi ran in Montreal, he was 30 seconds off Seb in qualifying. And at the end of the race, he was over a minute off. Did he not like Montreal's track either? I was kind of wondering that too. I mean, I get it. Kimmy is a fan favorite for reasons that I don't think anybody, including the fans, fully understand. But Kimmy is a fan favorite. Um, and from a PR perspective, because he's a fan favorite, he's wonderful. But from everything I understand, he's not a team player. He His... his Feedback for when it comes to how the car runs, from my understanding, is basically to tell the engineers, it's not doing what I want. Go fix it. Mm, that's and, constructive. You know, he, he's not the guy who will typically do the various PR bits that the teams want him to do, the marketing bits that the teams want him to do. So you got to kind of wonder about that. Nico is definitely going to be the team player no matter who he goes to. You know he's going to give them feedback. He's, we also know he's an incredibly sharp guy in terms of— Wickedly smart. Mm-hmm, his engineering and vehicle dynamics in particular, mm-hmm. let alone all the other bits and pieces that come around that. So now you end up, if you're Ferrari, and you've got Seb, who has also got a very strong reputation for feedback and embedding himself with the team and the engineers to improve performance. And then you take a Nico who has— just as good of a reputation. It could be. That could be a double whammy right there. It, it could really be that last piece of the magic puzzle that pushes Ferrari back ahead. But mind you, remember, Ross Braun has said that McLaren's the team that will beat Mercedes. No, so Ross Braun has not said that. Not Ross Braun. Ron Dennis. The other one. <laughs> the other one. Ron Dennis. The delusional guy versus the guy who who's well-respected and many people should think should leave his fishing break and take over Formula One. <laughs> There's a difference. Nobody's saying that Ron Dennis should take over Formula One from Bernie Eccleston. I don't think that there is anybody out there who actually thinks that Ron Dennis would make a better replacement running Formula One than Bernie Eccleston. Okay, fine. <laughs> fine. That could be really scary, actually. Imagine a world. <laughs> 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 all those R names, Ooh. they start to f- go together in my little head. I, but I, I, and this kind of brings me to the to the other big thing I want to talk about from this is, I don't think that Nico Rosper, as much as yes, they're they're two countrymen, and in theory, they're both mm-hmm. German. I don't think that Nico Rosberg and Sebastian Vettel get along particularly well, hmm. and that might be an issue. That could become an issue, especially if it becomes another Weber um, Vettel situation because they don't right. go on. 
Now, when you compare that to Sebastian Vettel and his performance and some audio that we're about to play you, <laughs> you know, Sebastian, we heard a lot. We NBC, you definitely heard it in the driver's, uh, the post-race uh, driver's room. Um, Sebastian joking about seagulls on the track and how they affected his performance. And he talked about it a couple times later on. But what I thought was really interesting is, you know, Sebastian, for many, many years when he was over at Red Bull, as much as Christian Horner said that this wasn't the case, the impression that you got of Sebastian Vettel, especially in the four years that he was winning, was that he was very German. And mechanical, what I mean, and he was calculating, wasn't mechanical, fun. not emotional, and yes, devoid of all emotion. Um, and yet, people would come out and say, "No, no, Sebastian is—he's lighthearted. He's got this incredibly good sense of humor. He's got this self-deprecating sense of humor. He's a huge Monty Python fan. Yeah, and his and apparently we love him. One of his girlfriends was British, um, and in his younger years, and mm-hmm. had really introduced him to British humor. Mm-hmm. Which had beloved him to so many people, but you never got that sense from the Seb of Red Bull years. You never saw him sort of break it down and you never cut saw loss. the character. You never saw that character in him. And um, and even you go back to a Bernie comment. Bernie had talked about you know as much as Red Bull really supported F one and would go and do everything Red Bull that Bernie asked him to do. He always said that Seb wasn't enough of a superstar like Lewis was. And is as a world champion, he would go home and you know be quiet. Well, he, he's and- very reserved in that respect. You know, Sebastian is one of the few Formula One drivers that does not have a Twitter account. And to my understanding, and I could be wrong, but I don't even think he's got a public Facebook page. He may have a private one. I don't know, but I don't believe he even has a public Facebook page. Which means there is nothing that really Seb does to interact with the fans. And a couple of years ago, NBC Sport, and it was a good video too. They, mm-hmm. they did an hour-long speci- special where they followed Seb for, I think, a week while he, his last year at Red Bull. It was in the off-season. Um, he went to his seat fitting and, and a couple of PRs of events. And they followed him to dinner at a friend's house somewhere and all. And yeah, we did get to see a different side of Seb. But in watching it, you still got that He's very, very German, German feel. And it always gets summed up with, Seb's just very German. Yeah. And that's the picture of it. And then we saw this. He got to Ferrari. And then he got to Ferrari. And he got to be fine. We we started to see it last year. And you heard the clip in our in our, our, our wrap-up shows, some of the, the things that he used to do in the press conferences. Right. Which, you know, part of the issue there, I think, is that we – doesn't matter who you really watch for your Formula One coverage. It The only way you're getting to hear what happens at those press conferences is if you go looking for it. Right. Nobody really covers them. So it's a lot of that is behind closed doors and the fans don't really get to see it. But when it comes out, it's like, wow, that's kind of cool. Well, we're seeing even more of Seb and his attitude and we definitely saw it this year. I mean, we've heard it over the radio a few times. Well, he's he's had actual emotions with many many colorful four-letter words. Yes. Often repeated and people are counting them now. Are you they? know, nobody nobody blinks an eye when Kimmy gets on the radio and says blankety blank blank blank. 
and it's unairable. Nobody mm-hmm. blinks an eye. But let Seb go, what the blank did this guy blank and do? <laughs> and they're like, he used the blank word three times. Well, you know, you hear stuff like this. If I don't avoid that, he's just going straight to my car. Honestly, what are we doing? Racing or pink pong? <laughs> <laughs> but... Th- in Montreal, we had a different side. We had a Seb who was very happy, even though he came in second. Right. And honestly, given the strategy and the way the race played out, Seb would be right to be really upset coming out of that. But he clearly, I mean, the first indication we had, it, and you almost never see anything like this, is on the cool-down lap at the end of the race, Seb pulls up next to Lewis, and they gave each other thumbs up, and they waved. Seth... Seb obviously enjoyed that race a lot. Mm -hmm. And it went on later. I mean, we heard it in the driver's room with the the Seagulls. But later on, and there's been a a few news stories about this, Seb walked in on on an interview with Lewis that Lewis was having over at Sky Sports. Um, So we've got a couple of bits and pieces because it's great. The the interaction here is fantastic. So first I've got... When Seb first walks up, he's not breaking for animals. You should give him a hard time because of that. What was that all about? I heard that. Seagulls, yeah? Two seagulls, turn one. I think. I feel like you're using the seagulls. I feel feel that they were innocent. Yeah, but I'm a racing driver, so I have to find some sort of excuse. Why why the hell you beat me today? I saw you look up, and then the seagulls did then move. I had my eyes into turn one, and I saw these. Stupid couple of seagulls sitting there, all relaxed. I'm coming. Hey man, it was planned. You know, my car is you know, red. I'm, you know it's I'm, like easy to you know see. I'm good with animals, right? It doesn't blend in like yours. I'm you know, like it's easy Dr. to do see. Little. I told them to be there, and they were there. And we've had we've had our boys in VT check it. They say they couldn't see anything. <laughs> Honestly, it's invisible seagull. No, it's white not dumps. invisible. Well, I don't know. Turtle Whatever. <laughs> white birds. It wasn't a pigeon. It was a seagull. I okay. could see the beak. The problem's usually groundhogs here. Though. I yeah. know their names, but they were there. You saw them as well. <laughs> <laughs> those seagulls and, and and it wasn't just the fact that seb w- was cracking jokes and having but the interaction between seb and lewis in general through this was fantastic i mean this is personality we just don't get to see that much i just love the imagery of this idea that lewis is suck sunk sent seagulls ah. and there's there's another word I was looking for, but it's not coming to my little lips this right now. He um, sicked seagulls on the track to distract Vettel. That, I think, is just this incredible imagery of, I told them to sit there, and they did. Well, you know, it, it got even better than that with this interaction. Um, well, you know, let, let me just play it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Sebastian, once I've got you here, can I just talk yeah, to you about your, your strategy? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> can I just talk to you about the strategy today? Um, your team boss has admitted that there was a mistake, but um, you know, you happy the way things panned out from the. First of all, I didn't want to crush your interview. I'm sorry. That's no, 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 it's uh, good. It's nice. It's nice. Uh, yeah, make it easy de- for me. <laughs> I will always defend what we do. I think we have a good people. We have very good people on board, and uh, yeah, I'll at that you. point. Did you try to do, did you, would you, honest answer, were you the always what? going to stay out? In the no, no, we were going to do a two-stop. Uh, that was plan, so you see, plan A was to do a two-stop as well, so. Yeah, no, it's never attack at that point, obviously I went in, was. and then in his shoes, you do the opposite. Yeah. So. Was it somewhere in between? I mean, was the problem that you couldn't get the data because the temperature was 
a lot colder than you thought. Oh, you I had think got... Friday was maybe showing that we were going to stay out anyways though they we had, before you had decided to to go in we were staying out i've been told to stay out so i think they had already yeah. just decided to go on to other uh, to another strategy yeah with hindsight you know it's always easy but <laughs> they said strategy think, uh, they said plan b and i was like what the hell is plan b <laughs> i don't remember what it is <laughs> That was my favorite line of the entire interview. They said plan B and what the hell is plan B? But but how great was it to have the two of them, two drivers from different teams, sit right there and freely discuss strategy yeah. and joke about what their strategy was during the race and where they're now the team bosses may have been a little ticked off about that, but still But I don't know if the team bosses really would be, because think about it. They're talking strategy, but they were talking about a race that happened in the past. They weren't talking about, oh, well, we're so good on tires that we, we, we're doing. Yeah. They weren't talking future strategy. They weren't talking telemetry. They weren't posting their telemetry results on Twitter. Um, <laughs> you know, a little blast from the past there. They weren't doing any of that. It was more of the Vettel asking Lewis, hey, honestly, did you go into this race with a one-stop strategy, or did you go in with a two-stop? Yeah. And yeah, we went in with a, a two-stop. That was the plan. But I was already told before you dove into the pits, I was already told we were going to plan B. So we already knew we were shifting to a one-stop. And then you dove into the pits. I mean, that's the line. That That's the story that they're telling here is Vettel's looking at it of, did you go to a one-stop because you were reacting to the fact we went to an early two-stop? And this, no, no, we already knew we were going to a one-stop at that point. And we continued down that line. And truly, it was a game of strategy. But that was so fun to listen to them discuss when the decisions were made, how the decisions were made inside their own teams. Now, I'll go back to the strategy in a second. But we did – they went further into this interchange and actually found the seagulls. Lewis's pet seagulls? They were the birds. <laughs> In terms of the seagull the hunt, the we seagulls. can't find him. I'm, 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 I'm gutted. The parrot, where he, he basically he, oh, he looked up, into, he looked turn up into turn one. Wait. And, and then he went wide. Oh. Yeah, that's the one. There you go. Oh, there. Two, oh. Seagulls. <laughs> Two seagulls, you see? I had my eyes in so deep into the apex, I looked up. Who so would have thought it? I thought it was groundhogs at the issue here. One more look at them. Oh my god, they're, they're so far away. Yeah, but I, mind, mind the animals. Honestly, <laughs> that is good. You, nice. should, you should get a medal for that. That's... Did you see? They stay. Can you show that again, please? They stay there. That's what really annoyed me. They stay there. Look, you're looking up already. If I look, there's a red car coming at. I don't know, something. They stay there. I'm not sure they're very clever seagulls, but there you go. Maybe that's <laughs> why. If you can catch those two seagulls, you might prove the opposite of what you ever found out in history about seagulls. We we continue this all I think day. I might have to buy you a couple seagulls. I don't think they'll. I don't know if they're white seagulls or whatever. I think you need a couple. But you told me you had some. Uh, the one bird did poo on my on my, my my visor at one stage. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I. I also hadn't known about the bird poo incident. I didn't either, but did you know that historically getting hit with bird poo is supposed to bring good luck and obviously it won Lewis's race <laughs> Okay. So looping back to, to strategy now. Now strategy. And yes. we can talk about interaction and, and personality more in a little bit. But I don't question necessarily Ferrari's decision to two stop. Mm -mm. That I don't necessarily find to be the issue. 
What I question was Ferrari's decision at the first stop to go to super softs instead of the softs. Because I think at that point, they limited their options. They forced themselves. They didn't have a choice at that point. They had to two-stop at that point. And, yeah, they may have been able to go um, – or they may not have been able to finish the race on super softs given how – or on softs, rather, given how early they had stopped. But at least if they had gotten the softs out of the way on that first stop, one, they would have met the requirement for the FIA to have run the soft tires because that was the only required tire this week was you had to run the soft tires. But they would have checked that box and been done with it. And then, by the way, now you're deeper into the race and, and you've still got to make that second stop, but you have the option of putting the super softs on, which are faster tires. You could have put the super softs on or you could put another set of ultra softs on. Uh, they didn't have ultra softs there. I thought that's what Lewis started on was the ultra. Oh, maybe they. Yeah, maybe they had these, you're right. The snuggle barracks. Maybe you're right. Because that's what they started the race on. He was yeah, ditching the right. snuggle bears on the eleventh lap. So, I have two issues. I think you are hundred percent correct, sir. I believe that they limited themselves and they went in knowing that they were going to go to a two-stop strategy, and so they didn't consider ticking the box earlier. And ending the race on a softer tire. And I think that was a key mistake. It it just limited flexibility. Well, it limited flexibility, but it also meant that you didn't get to end your race on the softest tire. Yeah. Which I think is a problem. But the other thing I have an issue with is that when the virtual safety car came out, they gambled that it was going to convert to a real safety car. Or that it was going to be out longer. It was one of those two that they, they were They made for. a serious gamble, but it was the 11th lap. Mm-hmm. And the question really in my mind is, the so the, the logic that they used was you aren't speed limited if you come into the pits. So you could gain two seconds by coming into the pits and getting fresh tires. So you gain two seconds and get fresh tires. That was the, that was the thought that's mm-hmm. going through Merce- um uh, Ferrari's head. The problem with that was that only worked if Lewis also came in. And the minute Lewis went past the pit lane and Ferrari was in that pit lane was when they lost it. Well, that and even worse, if you were Kimi Raikkonen where you got completely screwed because the team called you in under virtual safety car and by the time you hit the 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 pit entrance and the braking zone for pit entrance, the safety car, the virtual safety car was lifted and it was too late to react at that point. Right. And you he couldn't had stay to out. Come they in. tried to get him to stay out, but he couldn't because he was uh-huh. already in the, in the braking zone. So yeah, that was, that was just, I think that, I think that Ferrari got hit with this idea of it's a safety car, bring them in. And I think that that's what killed Monaco for Lewis last year was it's a safety car, mm-hmm. bring him in. And he, I mean, that was his call, and even that was a bad call. But I think that was Ferrari's mindset, and that's where they lost the race. But I think they could have won it otherwise. They really do. Yeah. Botch strategy. Yeah. But, and is that going to be the story of 2016? For Ferrari, Honestly. it's going to be at this but point. But it's not just Ferrari that's botching strategy. Well, it's, I think it's going to be reliability for Lewis and botch strategy for Ferrari. So far, that's what we're seeing. But we have mistakes. Let's make it a little bit more umbrella. Mistakes 
being the story of Red Bull losing Monaco, of Red Bull, yeah. of Ricardo losing Spain. We have mist botched strategy in Ferrari. We have errors. Well, I don't errors. Okay, errors. I don't necessarily think that Spain was a mistake, unless you're a Daniel Ricardo, exclusively a Daniel Ricardo fan. If you're a <laughs> Red Bull fan, and it's b because they gave the race to Verstappen while making it harder for Ricardo. Exactly, is what it is. That may not necessarily have been a mistake. I think as far as Ricardo is concerned, in, in, in it Ricardo's was, mind, it, hurt. it was. Yeah, it hurt. And I don't know if it's it was a mistake as much as it was not not honoring your your first guy. Yeah. But okay. But the other story I think this year, and this goes back to my my point that I was about to make anyway, is the thing that we have seen a lot of this year that I don't think we have ever seen before in Formula One, is that we we seem to be getting a bit more of the driver's personality. Oh yeah. Whether it's the you know the, the pictures from Drivers United from that dinner in Shanghai mm -hmm. at the Italian restaurant in China, which, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Best Italian food in Shanghai. Yeah. But, you know, from that to, you know, Felipe Massa putting out the, the video of Filipino and, and Daniel Ricardo and the car race on the balcony and, and what I'm assuming is Monaco. Um, and Ricardo lost that one too. Yes, so. he did. <laughs> it's a strategy error. It was all it was was a strategy problem. <laughs> um. Or, you know, Sebastian Vettel and him just being more open and friendly and reactive and responsive to there was pictures that went this week that I think of all people, Nico Rosberg tweeted. And he, he I don't think he was the only one. Um, it was the, the flight to Baku. Um, several of the drivers shared a flight. Uh, obviously, it was a private plane. But several of the drivers shared a flight to Baku. Um, so private plane, and, and think of your stereotypical private plane cabin of some lounge chairs scattered around, but a lot of space and a lot of room. And you've got Nico Rosberg sitting in a chair and Jensen Button sitting in a chair. And Esteban Gutierrez was on the flight. And I think Nico Hulkenberg may have been on the flight. And... Somebody else, I think Daniel Ricardo may have been on that flight or two, you know, all gathered around just sitting and relaxed and talking and sitting on the floor in the aisle way with his back up against the bulkhead and his feet stretched out in front of him is David Cothart. It's just this drivers relaxing and interacting with each other that we don't normally see. You know, normally the image you get of the Formula One driver and that we have gotten in the last few years is, yes, they get trotted out for whatever public affairs and media event, and some of those may make the driver smile or appear to be enjoying themselves. But for the most part, it's the calculated German. It's the, I go to the track, I do my thing, I celebrate on the podium, and then poof, I'm gone. We're seeing definitely a human side of our drivers. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, I have to say this, and I know I know the reaction is going to be that I'm biased, but I think honestly that Lewis has led the charge in that. Actually, I was going to say the exact opposite. I think this is where Lewis has failed. 
Well, yes, Lewis has a huge social, and, and he has cultivated an image on social media, and he does that, and he mm-hmm. does that extremely well. But the big difference, though, is that these are drivers living life and doing things that we would do. Okay, maybe we wouldn't be on a private plane, but it's the they're hanging with their buddies and they're chatting and they're talking and they're playing with with each other's kids and or as we saw after Montreal, two buddies after a, a, a match, a race, a competition, talking smack to each other and joking around about what happened during it. That's what's happening here. But Lewis's image and most of what Lewis does, unless you are into and if you read People Magazine, sorry, but it's the People Magazine set. This is the I'm living the celebrity lifestyle. And come check out the celebrity lifestyle and the celebrity things that I'm doing and the celebrity stuff that I'm hanging out with and, and doing and all of that stuff as opposed to, hey, all, all the drivers are out at, at dinner at the Chinese restaurant in China or the, the Italian restaurant in China. Okay. And that's different. It's different only because, and I'm going to hesitate to say this, you don't necessarily think of the drivers as being celebrities. And Lewis is doing nothing, but when he's in his off time, he's hanging with celebrities. Mm -hmm. And you see that as being different. You know, that's the socialite set versus their peer group is the way you're seeing the differences. I'm suggesting that by Lewis pulling back the curtain into his private life or his public private life, and bear with me, I mean, I'm sure that we're not seeing true private Lewis, but he's going off and doing things that are not, I come to the track, I show up, I drive my car, I disappear. He's living large and living this life. And, yeah, we don't see Lewis just kicking back in the middle of a plane with his you know, feet out, sitting up against the bulkhead or any of that. We're not seeing that version of Lewis, but it was Lewis that pulled that Italian dinner together. That was yeah. his idea. And he started to pull that curtain back and say, hey, I have this whole life. And, yeah, it's glamorous and it's, it's, it's full of celebrities and it's full of People magazine set. But for Lewis, that's his life. He's pulling back his curtain on his life. And for the other drivers, they're now starting to pull back the curtain on their life, which is a little more sedate than Lewis's life. But I think that Lewis has paved, my argument is that Lewis has paved the way to say, I am more than a race driver. I do more. And the other drivers are coming along and saying, I'm more than a race driver too. In my free time, I hang out with my butts. Or I have camaraderie. Or, you know, the number of the David Cothard and uh, Jensen Button picture in the back of the plane as they came back, having toasting one for the old boy. Yeah. Um, That was one of those first times you really got to see that there's a true brotherhood that's going on behind, peeled back. And it's not just, you know, show up in your race suit. and And, and, you know, we're seeing a lot more of that. You know, the, the closest we used to get to that, as great as the BBC's coverage was, the closest that you used to get to that was occasionally you'd get what were truly staged events. You know, the, the interview last year with Lee McKenzie and um, Sebastian and Lewis, mm-hmm. I think in Malaysia, or the one that they did a couple of years ago, it was just before 
think it was the year that Mark Weber retired. It was I, Fernando and Weber. Yes, it was Fernando and Weber, and I think they had actually done it. it. wasn't so much because Mark was retiring, but because Fernando was doing his 500th race. Which you know, anytime there's a milestone race, that's kiss of death for the team. Um, <laughs> just saying. So, but it but was those a were all very of, scripted. They are scripted, and you know, yes, you got like a moment of the guard coming down, and you know that was probably the best part of the interview. I think more of what she started to see in the camaraderie piece was watching the grid walks with. Uh, particularly between Cothard and Button. Yes. Um, and their Tinder accounts. Um, <laughs> but the two of them have the ability, well, at least Button had the ability to drop his guard with Cothard, and they're really good friends. And so they could pal around on camera, and Button could then put his head down and still be in the race. And some of the other guys can't do that. They can't break it at that point. There are on the grid they need to be focused on their jobs and buttons kind of more flexible well i think some of that also was just given where the season was going you know i'm just you have to lose? and and we're we've seen that a little more this year again watching the channel four coverage when mark weber is there because, because that's their again bud. david cothard and, and mark weber get along really well and they interact really well um i think there's a, a solid level of respect that um, Cothard has for Susie Wolf. Mm-hmm. They did drive together this past year in, in Race of Champions, right? Representing Scotland. Okay, but it, it's not quite the same. But still, I think it's a lot more, lot freer than we have seen in the past from drivers. I think so, and I think that it's. It, and I, I hope they keep it up. Thing. I hope they keep it up. So moving on to wrap up a couple of things on Montreal, and then we'll talk about this week. Um, Haas suffered, it was a confirmation. We heard uh, Roman Grosjean yelling after jumping over some curbs, um, whether or not, he was asking whether or not a wing fell off. (laughs) Turns out front wing did fall off. It was their fourth wing failure. However, because initially... Roman was yelling that Haas needs to sort this out because, I mean, let's face it, having front wings fall off is, is not cool. It turns out that this one wasn't the team's fault. Oh. Well, it was, but not in a manufacturing way. Um, if you recall, early in the race, um, Roman got into a bit of a tangle with Esteban Gutierrez, mm-hmm. his teammate. Ouch. And it was damage from that interaction that caused the wing to give way when Roman crossed over the curb. He basically shook the wing loose. Ouch. Yeah. So there's that. Um, Back to Red Bull. It is confirmed that Daniel Ricciardo will be with the team through 2018. So there's another year on his contract. Okay. And I should also mention, and I should have mentioned this earlier, um, word on the street regarding Nico Rosberg's contract. We know Nico wants a multi-year deal. He's looking for three years. Word is that Mercedes has only offered him a year. Oh. So we don't know where negotiations stand beyond that, whether or not there is a compromise in one direction or another, but that's what it sounds like is that Mercedes offering up a year and Nico wants three. Interesting. With folks saying that, yeah, maybe he shouldn't do that. So, this week, 
we have the most ridiculous back-to-back that I think Formula One could possibly come up with, short of going, oh, I don't know, from Silverstone to Malaysia. Yeah, probably. Formula One takes the circus to Baku, Azerbaijan, where we get to see in living color what happens when you bring a Super Mario Kart track into the real world. <laughs> you got Bowser's Castle on the left. You got... <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's when they go over the Rainbow Bridge that's a really big problem. Yeah. <laughs> And the little mushrooms that jump out and the stars, it's a problem. Yeah. All right. So do we want to talk about Azerbaijan and Baku in particular as far as statistics or stats? Well, let's hit them real quick. I, You know, we, we don't have a whole lot to talk about because we haven't actually seen the race yet. We've just watched qualifying. Um, but so let's let's hit the stats and then we'll talk real quick about qualifying and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Um, so... The first stat I want to start with is the most depressing stat to me. Okay. Now, I know that I love all stats that are in terms of masses. Yes. Um, this is in terms of botasses. And that's depressing? Well, I it, thought you liked Valtteri. I like Valtteri a lot. See? Up until the point that I found out that it was probably a really bad thing to like Valtteri as much as I do. Um, apparently... Um, Baku Azerbaijan is two years younger than Valtteri Botas, <laughs> which in essence wouldn't be a bad thing, except that Isn't he like twenty. No, no, he's twenty-seven, I believe. Oh, he's not that young. No, okay. he's not that young, but still probably a little too young for me, considering he was two when you and I graduated high school. Yeah, well. Um, because Baku, Azerbaijan, was founded in 1991. Yeah. Yeah. So, alas. <laughs> Actually, that seems unusual. And the reason why I say that, it, Baku as a city has existed a lot longer than that. We know this. Yeah, it, but the nation of Azerbaijan, I don't know, maybe the modern nation, after the the dissolving of the the soviet union because baku has been an oil producing city and region since the early 1900s since before world war one it's the founding of the republic of azerbaijan by the way okay so it so may not have been a republic it, before or it's the independent okay. republic okay um, Baku Street Circuit is projected to be one of the fastest in the world, reaching speeds up to 320 kilometers per hour. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Baku sits on the Caspian Sea. Yes. Do you know what is special about the Caspian Sea? It is an inland sea that has oil underneath it. Well, I don't know about the oil underneath it. I'm sure it's there. But it is the largest enclosed um, inland body of water on the Earth by area. Okay. Um, 371,000 square kilometers. Now, Baku is officially known as the City of Winds. Yes, and if you're 12, (laughs) those aren't the winds that they're talking about, but it is a great image to have. (laughs) To reference one of my favorite movies, it is a mighty wind. Um... I find it funny that Azerbaijan is the the country of fire, 
that fire is a big deal yes. to them. And yet Baku is the city of winds. Well, the name Baku derives from the Persian for wind pounded. Interesting. Now, according to Azeri mythology, there are traditionally two kinds of wind. Neither of them are what you're thinking. I don't know. If you ask a high school student, they might be able to come up with more than just two. <laughs> There's Remember, fart jokes are always funny. No, no, honey. They are not. There's Kazari, which is translates to negative, and it's the cold and rough wind. Don't even back up. Now, there is Gilivar, which is, it translates to goodness. And that is the mild and gentle wind. <laughs> you can stop now. This was not. <laughs> All right. So, go on. I don't know. It's going to be a while for me to get that out of my system. It's a different kind of wind. <laughs> so, did you know that it is first? It is thought that the first constructed fireplace in human history was discovered in Azerbaijan. Huh? I wouldn't have thought that. It was in an Aski cave between five hundred thousand and seven hundred thousand years ago. That's where the first fireplace existed. And Azerbaijan, as I alluded to before, is considered the land of fire. So it's the land of fire and the city of wind. They need to stop eating the spicy <laughs> food. <laughs> All righty. So those were your facts courtesy of our friends over at Williams. Yes. I have some from Reno. How is Team now, Banana doing? Obviously, in terms of track facts, we don't have a whole lot because nobody really knows what this track is going to do. Hey, but guess what? Everything today will be a first. Yes, that it will. Um, 18, it, it's expected that 18% of the lap will be spent braking. With the highest G-force at turn 18 for 0.3 seconds will be 3.9 G. Um, and a top speed of 351 kilometers per hour. Now, to get there... There is expected to be 76 gear changes per lap. Wow. So Renault's facts, obviously there was the one about the, the Windy City. Um, but they also have that Baku is located 92 feet below sea level. Now this makes it the lowest lying national capital in the world and also the largest city in the world located below sea level. We have found Atlantis. Possibly. Um, another interesting fact here. Didn't know this. Former chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov was born in Baku, okay. and he attended chess school there. Uh, Forty percent of the country is covered by mountains, and there are eight thousand three hundred and fifty rivers in Azerbaijan, which all drain into the Caspian Sea. So, tire selection for the weekend is the Super Soft, the Soft, and the Medium. Um, Kind of seems like an odd choice for a road circuit that's brand new and probably super slippy. Um, I'm thinking they're going super conservative went, there. They went conservative because they don't know. But uh, yeah, that it was a similar lot. to the selection for Sochi when Sochi just yeah. first started. But we also didn't have the the ultra soft then. Yeah. 
Uh, race distance is 306.051 kilometers over 51 laps and a circuit length of 6.001 kilometers. Okay. And initial runs, this is the other thing. So drivers have expressed some concern over the track quite a bit of concern on the track. Jensen Button in particular, and, and what I found really interesting about this is Jensen Button in particular and a few other drivers have called out that you know this track being as tight as it is and as twisty as it is in places, yes, you can't move buildings, but there isn't a whole lot of runoff. Right. Now, I can't help but compare that to some commentators' remarks after Montreal that specifically called out the Wall of Champions and how drivers like to run up nice and close to it and kiss it where they can when they're driving it because it's this whole risk versus rewards thing, and the closer you can swing to that wall, the the better you're going to end up doing, and drivers love being able to dance on that knife edge like that, which seems awfully odd that if that was actually true, that they would be so upset and we would hear the comments that we've been hearing about the layout in Baku. I know. But there were also comments during qualifying that there is a section that is reminds everybody very much of the Wall of Champions and that people are trying to kiss it oh, a little too hard yeah. um, <coughs> each time. So that's an interesting piece. Now, we expected that that turn 9, 10, 11 complex by the, the castle wall would be a sor- source of concern and issue and problems. Um, that isn't where the FIA has had to go back and make changes, though. No. No, where they actually went back was, because um, their concern is more related to the curbs that were put in place. Uh, for final practice outwards, the exit curbs at turn 6 and turn 12 will be removed and replaced by painted markings. Um, they're also doing additional work on the curbs in the high-speed section between turn 12 and 15. Uh, the reason for this is I guess there were concerns regarding the bolts that are used to hold them in place. They weren't flush enough. They didn't go down enough. And as a result, tires were getting cut. And a lot of the drivers were suffering from cut tires over there. That and the bolts were shearing off and leaving the curb flapping. There that was, was a int- different area. I believe that was over by the, the pit exit where that was a problem. Yeah, that was some image, some video that we saw during um, qualifying. And then, so do you remember one of the things, one of the stats that we talk about every so often about Monaco is that they weld all the manhole covers down? Yes. Well, Even though they lost one, Valtteri, not Valtteri, somebody kicked one up and it flew back at Jensen Button and smashed his car. Right. Um, but they do attempt to weld them down in place because of the, the downdraft. The suction. Suction underneath the cars. Apparently, it was Massa in the pit lane ran over a— No, it was Valtteri Bottas. It was a Valtteri. It was, yes. I knew it was a Williams. Um, ran over a drain in the pit lane and kicked that piece up. It did damage to his car. And that w- if he was moving at speed— It would have done. That probably would have killed one of the two guys that was standing on the— pit wall at that point yeah so i was i mean i was concerned that they didn't talk they were talking about what they were going to do to deal with it but one of the things they weren't talking about was welding them down in place and i'm like don't they already know that they have to do that well if you looked at the pictures when they showed a close-up 
they're going to need to get back down there again mm-hmm. because they were using that drain to, as a cableway. Yeah. So I'm assuming that that is how various communication links are being routed between the pit wall and the garages. And that would be fine. And you can unweld something. I mean, they yeah, open well, up the manhole covers in Monaco after. I mean, they weld them down for the yeah. race and they undo that when they turn it back into roads. Um, and they could do that. But they got to weld that stuff down. I mean, that's dangerous. Yeah. So, so there are changes being made to the circuit to accommodate that. Um Herman Tilke was asked by the folks over at BBC because he was out there. And mm-hmm. He has designed this route. And we talked last year and I think the year before as we were doing the run-up to this, there were a lot of issues with the planning of the route of this. And they had to reroute it multiple times because it was deemed to not be exciting enough. Right. Or potentially not being exciting enough. But uh, this weekend in, in the run-up to the race – uh, Herman Tilke was out there. He designed the track, and the BBC asked him, you know, is this a track that you are proud of? And Herman's response, ask me Sunday afternoon. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, see how exciting it is after the race. Yeah. Well, we're going to need to see this race. We do. Um, it was a very disappointing qualifier. Yeah. We'll Especially for my guy. Yeah. Lewis, uh, I don't know what's going on there after dominating FP1 and 2 and everybody was saying this is his race. I don't know what the heck is going on there. I don't know. We definitely saw the return of Moody Lewis. Yeah. What did you call it? Sulky Lewis? Sulky Lewis, Moody Lewis, yeah. Emo Lewis. Emo Lewis. (laughs) Yeah. So we've run long. Yes, we should wrap up so we can see the race. We will wrap up and call it a show. Um let us know your thoughts on this and whether or not Formula One should really be in Azerbaijan and whether or not they're getting anything out of it. We got some other impressions that came from qualifying that we'll talk about next week. Uh, but on that, I think we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay.